The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. Welcome. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. We're really glad you're joining us this morning. I want to welcome the folks that are tuning in online. I know we've got folks that are always out in the lobby, and so... Glad that we have the capacity to gather in a couple different ways on Sunday mornings. Uh, you're joining us on week number two. We've, we've decided around the Valentine's Day season to, to pause our, our teaching series through the, through the Gospel of Mark. And, and for three weeks here, we've just decided to look at the issue of, of marriage and relationship. We're calling the series Love, Marriage, uh, Family. And, and as you look at who uh, our, our commitment at, at Heritage Christian Fellowship to make disciples who make disciples. We believe a disciple is someone who has faith in Christ, who is growing in the likeness of Christ, and who is leading others to follow Christ. And in that, in that endeavor to make disciples like that, we've identified eight markers of what it means to be a disciple. And one of the core markers of discipleship, we believe, is, is our, our authentic relationships marked by love. And one of the primary ways we live out our relational lives are within the context of marriage and family. And so we thought it would be important for us to kind of press in to that area and, and, and give some tools to our congregation regarding uh, relationships in marriage. Last week, if you were here, we, we jumped into the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and we asked two questions. The two questions we asked are, what is love? And the second question was, how do I love? We looked at Ephesians 5. We're going to be back in there, so if you want to turn to Ephesians 5, we'll be there here in a minute. And we initially, last week, looked at Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul, speaking to the, the church, to, to, to brothers and sisters in Christ, speaking about Christian community, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And, and so what is love? We looked at the example of Jesus, and we saw that Jesus, the way in which he loves, he loves the undeserving, he loves sacrificially. We saw that Jesus loves extravagantly, uh, beyond our wildest imagination, and he loves in a joyous way. And so that's what love is, as defined by Scripture, as modeled by Christ. And so then the question, how do I love? Well, we love like Jesus loves. And so the challenge we left with last week was, oh God, make us a people uh, individually and corporately, that loves in this way, that loves the undeserving, that loves in sacrificial ways, that loves in extravagant ways, and that does so with the joy of the Lord. And that's what we walked out of here last week. This week, as we journey a little further down in this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus, he teaches on what that sort of love looks like, contextualized within the marriage relationship. Looking forward to sharing that with you. First, would you join me in prayer before we jump into the text? Father, I thank you for these people who you've gathered here today. And God, I know there's men and women here who are married, who are single, some who are desiring marriage, some who aren't. God, we're all over the map. And so I don't, I don't, I don't pause to, to, to not consider the, the wholeness of the assembly here today. God, I pray that as we gather and sit under this word, whether we're married or not, God, that you would utilize this text to encourage our spirits, God, to to bring um, worship out of us, Lord. If we are out of line, and, and God, use this word to bring correction and rebuke that we might feel a conviction of the Spirit, confess of that, and repent of that. Ultimately, God, be glorified today in the preaching of your word. Open our eyes and loosen up our ears and, and soften our hearts that we can respond to your word today in obedience. God, we love you, and we trust you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I'm convinced that smart devices have actually made us dumber. You guys agree? 
I think smartphones have made us dumber. I, I think we have been sort of built to let these devices do the thinking for us. We kind of just get, do what we're told. We get in line. I'm sort of a conspiracy theorist. I was born and raised in Montana, so it sort of comes with the territory. Tinfoil hat. I'm convinced that AI is going to be the demise of the human race, but that's another topic for another day. Even though I am deeply suspicious of smartphones and smart technology, I'm very thankful for those little GPS apps that tell me how to get from point A to point B. Those are so handy. Those are so handy. Uh, uh, it's no secret that I am a terrible, terrible driver. Uh, and, and the less distraction for me behind the wheel, the better. Somehow, I think I might have told, I've been in like 20 car accidents over the course of my life. Not an exaggeration, true story. Driving for only like half, so hold back your judgment. And, uh, and I've shared with the staff some of the stories of my car accidents. And so now, anytime we have to go anywhere as a staff, no one lets me drive. It's like nobody. And I keep telling them, if you want to grow your prayer life, hop in the passenger seat. It'll be great. We'll get there maybe. Uh, And so for me, I need all the help that I can get when it comes to driving. And so I am thankful for this little person that lives within my phone. I just punch in the destination and she very kindly gives me warnings about when I need to merge or turn. And then I turn and I, and I, and I get to, it, it, it routes me to my destination. It's amazing. But even with all the helpful coaching, I'm still a very distractible person. And more often than not, I end up missing a turn, or I turn too soon, or I get distracted, I follow a squirrel, I don't know, but I find myself off track, and and at which point the phone kind of pauses, and this little wheel peers up, and then it says, you guys know what it says on there? Rerouting, right? Rerouting. I'm like, oh, okay, so I got off track. And if it's not too far off track, usually the little very kind lady says to me, you know, in .3 miles, you'll have to do a U-turn and get back on track. You moron. And then, and so that's sort of what she said. But sometimes I'm so distracted, I get so far off track where I have to kind of do like this really long back way to eventually reconnect with the destination. But it's committed to getting me to my destination, reroutes and all. When it comes to marriage, I don't think I appreciated or anticipated how many reroutes are involved in marriage. In fact, even though Becky and I had some really solid pre-marriage counseling early on, I don't think I fully understood early on, especially in our engagement, the, the purpose of marriage, the goal of marriage. My philosophy in marriage probably had a little bit too much Hollywood in it, and, and I was probably a little bit more concerned with my own personal happiness. It took me some time to realize that marriage, the goal of marriage is not the happiness of Paul. The goal of marriage is my holiness. And God often uses marriage as as one of the primary ways in which he sanctifies away the sin and brings about godliness in my life. And so when Becky and I decided to exchange vows 22 and a half years ago, we we both were looking together at Jesus. And though we didn't know a whole lot, we knew enough. We recognized that our marriage was to be a picture or a reflection of the gospel. And we wanted that to become the goal. And so we took out our little marriage wayfinding app and we punched in Christ-centered marriage. Uh, we punched in a Christ-centered marriage that, that serves as a picture of the gospel, where Becky will submit to Paul as the, as the church submits to Christ, where, where Paul will love Becky as Christ loves the church for the glory of God. Boom. The app lit to life, and it said the destination was a lifetime away. And there was a massive separation from the marriage we had to the Christ-centered, gospel-reflecting marriage we desired to have. But we were on the same page. We both desired to take our marriage in that direction. So together, we hit the go button, and we begin the process. And many, 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 many times along the way, we've gotten off, 
And God in his grace has had to reroute us. But after nearly 23 years, we're not at our destination. But with God's help, our marriage is a work in progress. We're getting closer and one day, after many, 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 many reroutes, when we stand in the presence of Jesus, we'll see the fullness of what that even means. But we hold up the gospel. We look to Jesus and the church is our ideal. And with joy and with hope and with resolve, we journey together. That's what marriage is. For those of you that are here today and you're married, or for those of you that have been married, I know you can identify. There's not a marriage that exists that hasn't had to experience multiple reroutes along the way. That's just a part of marriage. We sin, we get off track, we take our eyes off Jesus, we become selfish. And so my guess is there's many of you who have had to experience that in your life. And actually, there might even be some of you here today that have taken a special interest in this teaching series because your marriage is currently in a state where it's, it's, it's off track, and you know that. And you're trying to figure out what does it even look like for us to get back on track. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. And I know there's some of you here today that are not married. Um, and I was thinking about all the men and women that are going to be here today, married and not married. I was trying to think, who's everybody that's going to be sitting in the seats, who's going to be tuning in online, who's going to be downloading the podcast? Who are all the people that are going to hear this teaching today? I thought there's going to be those who are single and happy. Singleness is a high calling. I mean, since the Bible holds single, he calls it a gift. And so we don't talk about that enough. That's why we're encouraging you to take care of that, take advantage of that resource that, we're, that we pushed out this Thursday. So there's some of you here that are single and happy. Some of you that are single and not so happy with your singleness. There's some that are engaged and hopeful. There's some of you that are married and happy. Some of you that are kind of married and indifferent. And there's some of you here who are married and miserable. And there's those of you who are divorced and those of you who are widowed. No matter where you are, no matter who you might be, I believe that, that God has something for you today. Because love is required for any meaningful human relationship. Paul's words uh, at the beginning of chapter 5, to, to love as imitators of God, to, to walk in love as Christ loved us, this is true of any relationship. We, all of us, in any relationship in which we live, loving the undeserved and loving sacrificially and loving in ways that show extravagance and loving in ways that, that reveal the joy of the Lord, we're all called to that. And for the sake of our, our, our sermon today, we're contextualizing that within the, the relationship of marriage. But if you go back to your, your Bible, our, our text today is, is starting in verse 22, but I do, just real quick, Paul, at the end of this, the middle part of chapter 5, he sort of paints this amazing picture, I think, of what Christian community is supposed to look like, whether it's marriage or brothers and sisters in Christ or whatever. He just paints this really beautiful image of, 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 of a loving Christian community, beginning in verse 18. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This picture of loving like Jesus is just so beautiful. It, uh, this picture of worshiping together in song and in heart melody with thankfulness to God for Jesus Christ. This is the stuff that creates intimacy. It creates real community. There can be mutual submission out of reverence for Christ, Paul says. And that word for submitting is interesting because verse 15 through 21 is one long sentence in Greek. And, and that, that word submit is actually connected to this verb up in verse 15 that talks about walking in wisdom as Christians. And the way in which we walk in wisdom is submitting to one another. And so this principle of submission or this encouragement from Paul is for all the different members of the household of God 
to submit to others according to the authority established by God. God is, it's not a mutual submission in that it's egalitarian. It's a, it's a submission that's in line with the, the way in which God has ordered and established relationships. And then in our text, verse 22, the, the primary text today, the first example of general submission is the wife's submission to her husband. And then Paul challenges the husbands, on the other hand, not to submit to their wives, but to love them in humble and self-serving ways. Okay, all that is a setup for the text that you're probably familiar with, but let's read through it together. Verse 22 through verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should, lead, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This, is a, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There is so much contained in these verses. And we're not going to say all that can be said about those verses today. We're going to say something about those verses, but there's more. The, 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 there, this is a mind that you can, you can mine for the rest of your life and continue to find nuggets. But before I, I jump in, just real quick, into this teaching about marriage, because we're going to jump in here in a second, I just want to remind us as a church, and I'm mindful, of course, of those of you here today who are single. Listen, marriage is not ultimate. Marriage's greatest value is that it points to something beyond itself, something much greater and something eternal. We've had this tendency in the evangelical American tradition to, to make an idol out of marriage and children. We, we've, had a, we've had a tendency to elevate that as if we've said to people, you haven't fully arrived as a Christian unless you're married and have kids. That is not a biblical construct. It's just simply not true. Marriage, yes, it can be a, a glorious and beautiful means to, 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 to the end of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, marriage is not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Marriage helps us get there, but that's not the only way that we get there. But for all of us, married and single, divorced and widowed, wherever you may be, the one marriage that we cannot live without is the marriage we, the church, have with Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, in this letter, Paul's speaking of marriage, and in our text, he's speaking of marriage. He's writing to a community of newer believers. There was a, in, in the city of Ephesus, there was a cultural understanding of marriage that was different than the biblical understanding of marriage. There were non-Christian views of marriage. Paul here writes for a bunch of reasons, but he's saying, hey, marriage is this one flesh union between one man and one woman, and there's unique complementary roles between the genders in the relationship of marriage within the confines of marriage. That's where it all belongs. 
And so Paul's writing to offer this proper and appropriate picture of marriage. We likewise live in a culture today that has redefined marriage in a lot of different ways. And Paul, God through Paul is speaking to us today that we might have a proper and appropriate picture of marriage. And as we said earlier, we've got these two resources. I, I just want to encourage you to engage with these resources that we pushed out through our website so, or through our email. So rich. I, I've watched both of them, the one on singleness and the one on marriage. I was watching the one on marriage this week. It's Paul Tripp who's speaking at a conference, and then there's some study that you can do afterwards. But, but Paul Tripp, in, his, in the lesson that we've sent out to you, he, he talks about the temptation for us as sin, sinful human beings is we want to be the ones who sit on the throne of our lives. He talks about the claustrophobic smallness of a kingdom of one. And in this claustrophobic smallness of a kingdom of one, sin manifests in utter selfishness and in antisocial tendencies. And when the primary driving motivation in my marriage or in my relationships or in my life is to appease this king of one, the throne of which I sit, I begin to dehumanize all the core relationships in my life, and I begin to see people simply for what they can do for me. And so we reduce our loved ones, our spouses, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we reduce them to either vehicles or obstacles, according to Tripp. Vehicles to help me get where I want, are obstacles in the way of what I want. And so if Jesus is not on the throne of my life, I'm going to live every relationship in such a way that I twist and distort them to serve me. And then he goes on to say this, and is speaking to married couples. He says, listen, Jesus came to rescue you from you. You are not to be the one who sits on the throne of your life. Jesus is. Everything, the, the, the wholeness and the fullness of who you are as a human being is to be under the authority of King Jesus. He is on the throne. Jesus came to rescue you from you. And here's what he says, which I sent out to the staff and my family because it was convicting to me. It will never be about you. You've been made, you have been born into a world that by its very nature is the celebration of another. If you make it about you, you sign on for endless impatience, endless disappointment, and endless frustration. It will never be about your kingdom. The king of kings will not forsake his kingdom in order to make your kingdom work. It will never be about you. I was super convicted by Tripp's words. When you make it about you, when you're the one that sits on the throne, you'll have endless frustration and endless anger and endless disappointment because you're going to try to twist and bend every relationship to serve you. That is a cancer to marriage, and that's a cancer to any relationship. We are to be imitators of God. Remember 5 verses 1 and 2? As beloved children, we're to walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All of that by way to three simple points on marriage. How do we live out this love in the context of marriage? Look at verse 22. Wives, Paul says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. In Christian marriage, quite simply, wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. That's exactly what the text says. There's all three points. Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Paul makes this statement, but then he offers reasons why. He says the, 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 the way in which wives are to submit to their husbands, it is to emulate the love relationship between the church and the Christ, in the church and Christ. The church doesn't have to wonder. We don't have to gather here today and wonder about Christ's love for us. The cross bears witness to the love of Jesus for his church. When someone experiences that, that sacrificial, joyous, extravagant love of Jesus, uh, then, then submission to his lordship, when our eyes are fully open to that, submission to his lordship becomes the only right response. The church's submission to Christ is an example 
of what the wife's submission to her husband ought to look like. And I believe it's important here to understand this word submit, because it's been twisted. The submission of the wife to the husband that Paul is referring to here, listen to me, in no way infers inferiority. Do you hear that? The submission of a wife to her husband in no way implies inferiority. I read this week that the headship of the husband to the wife here speaks of authority, but this authority is not synonymous with tyranny. Wives and husbands have different God-appointed roles. However, there is equal dignity because both male and female, husband and wife, bear divine, the divine image. They've both been made in the image of God. And so in Christ, husbands and wives have put on the new person who is created to be like God. The picture here is not one of antagonism, it's one of complementarianism. It's one where the, the, the genders, the roles complement one another. And I understand this word submit can carry some baggage. I think the reason why we often associate, the why it can carry baggage is I think we associate the word submit to worth. We think submit is, is, is another way to say that you're less than or you're weaker than or you're, you're, you should willingly be oppressed. We, we think of submit as to give up or to be a doormat or to sheepishly surrender to a dominant abusive power of another. I've told husbands a thousand times as a pastor, if you ever find yourself pounding your fist on the table and demanding that your wife submit, you have lost. You're in sin. That's not the picture here. That's abuse. Listen to what I read this week by one theologian. He said that the verb submit be subordinate can be used of Christ's submission to the authority of the Father. It shows that it can denote a functional subordination without implying inferiority or less honor and glory. In other words, when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about Christ's submission to the Father, the same word there is used of the wife's submission to her husband. It does not imply inferiority in any way. The scriptures are clear. Both genders are created in God's image equally. Both women and men are heirs together of eternal life. The submission of a woman to her husband is done with humility and respect to the ultimate leadership of the husband for the health and harmonious working of the marriage relationship. And so to add just a little bit more clarity here, I wanted to share with you six things that submission is not. They're on the board. I've adapted this from something I read on Desiring God last year, but I want to share with you six things, just for clarity's sake, that submission is not. Submission is not agreeing on everything. I've heard married couples tell me in the past, oh, we've never had a fight. And I say, number one, liar! But number two, I say, if you really never have had a fight, well then someone is a doormat, and someone is dominating the other. Marriage is a place where there can be humble uh, disagreement, and it's an iron... Listen, iron doesn't sharp iron unless sparks fly. Don't forget that. Iron sharpens iron in a healthy, humble relationship. And in fact, disagreements can bring sanctification about in one another's lives. So submission is not agreeing on everything. And there are times, in the most extreme cases, if a husband is trying to cause his wife to reject Christ, well, that's an area where agreement's not possible, nor should it be. Two, submission does not mean checking your intellect or your wisdom. Marriage is a one-flesh union— and there's humble collaboration between husbands and wives and is vital to the health of the marriage and the vitality of the family. The number one source of wise counsel in my life for the last 22 years has been my wife. 
I have lots of godly friends, pastors, wise counsel. The number one source of wise counsel in my life has been my wife. She's brilliant and she's a godly woman and she does not, I would, I would be a way less, I would, I would hate our marriage if my wife in some ill-gotten scheme checked her intellect or her wisdom at the door. Our family would suffer. Decision-making and problem-solving and future planning are done best and in the healthiest way when they're done in collaboration as husband and wife. Thirdly, submission does not mean the absence of influence. Again, I cannot think of another person in my life who has influenced me greater than my wife. She is the primary tool of sanctification in my life. God uses her to sharpen me. I often tell people that I am the man today because of the loving persistence of Becky. She's never stopped praying for me, speaking truth into my life, desiring for me to be the man of God that she knows God wants me to be. And so I'm thankful for her influence. Submission is not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. Jesus is Lord, period. Our text today says that the wife is to submit to her own husband as to the Lord. And there are rare cases, or maybe not so rare in, in some instances, where a wife has to choose between the will of the Lord and the will of her husband. And if that's the case, she must choose Jesus. Fifth, submission does not mean getting all of her spiritual strength from her husband. Becky and I are going to talk about this here in a minute, but, but in, in marriage there is an individual and then a, and a collective pursuit of Christ together in marriage. So, so we pursue Jesus, we pursue godliness, we pursue wisdom, we meet with God in the, in, in the scriptures, we do that ind independently of one another, and we do it corporately together. And it's vital that husbands are the spiritual leaders of the home, as we'll see here in a minute, but the ultimate goal is, and the ultimate hope we have is in God alone. And lastly, submission does not mean, and this is the big one, submission does not mean living or acting in fear. Submission is not accepting abusive behavior. According to the order of marriage given here in Ephesians, men are called to a unique kind of servant leadership in marriage. And women are called to a unique kind of respectful submission in marriage. Husbands and wives complement one another. And this is a beautiful God-designed thing that he has done in marriage. Piper puts it this way. He says, submission is the defined calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership. And so help to carry it through according to her gifts. So first, Paul teaches on the roles of wives. He says, in Christian marriage, wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Let's go back to the text. If you look at verse 25, the first half of 25, he then turns his attention to men. I find it interesting that a handful of verses are dealing with the role of, of wives and, and women in marriage, and then a whole lot more verses are dedicated to the role of men in marriage. And, and, and primarily, what, what, what God says through Paul, he says, husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so that's the second thing we see. We see husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Paul makes this statement, and then he offers the reasons why husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. It, it, husbands are to love their wives, and it's to emulate the love relationship between Christ and the church. And so the standard of a husband's love in marriage could not be higher. It is the ultimate standard. It is Jesus. No husband's ever going to perfectly love the way Jesus perfectly loved, but we are to strive to love like Jesus. In other words, we're to take out our app, and we're to put that in our wayfinding app, love my wife the way Christ loved the church, hit go, and 8,000 reroutes later, we continue to stay on that track, desiring to that end. And never does Paul in the scripture exhort husbands to rule over their wives ever. Instead, husbands are told over and over again to exercise and love repeatedly. Nowhere are they told to exercise their headship, but instead husbands are constantly urged to, to love their wives. In fact, three times in our text he says it. 
And so husbands are to love their wives in the same manner as Christ loved for the church. How did Christ love the church? Look at verses 25, 26, and 27. He gave himself up for her. The abandonment of self-interest. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. We spent a lot of time on those few verses this week in sermon development. We talked about them a lot. And ultimately, when I see this picture, I imagine there's going to be a day when Paul, the head of my household, I'm going to stand before Jesus. And I'm going to stand before him, and he's going to look at me, and he's going to look at my wife. He's going to look back at me, and he's going to point to my wife, and he's going to say, Paul, did you make her better? Did you make her better? The way you prayed for her, the way you served her, the way you sacrificed for her, the way you encouraged her, the way you rebuked her, the way you walked with her, the way you loved her, the way you led her. Did you make her better? That's what, that's what Paul's getting to here. And then he's going to point to my kids. And he's going to say, Paul, you're the head of your house. Did you lead and love in such a way that you made them better? The way you loved your kids and served your kids and prayed for your kids and, and read scripture with your kids and walked with your kids and rebuked your kids and corrected your kids and encouraged your kids. Did you make them better? This is what headship is. I find it interesting that the, head, we are, the headship of the husband is modeled by the headship of Christ. And Christ didn't come in with an iron fist. He came in with grace and humility. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So husbands are to love their wives in the same manner in which they love their own bodies, he goes on to say. In the same way a husband should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Marriage is a one flesh union. The image of love is, is selfless in every way. We see a picture of love that is sacrificial, a picture of love that, paces, that places service, above others, service of others above self. Jesus himself said that the greatest act of love is to lay down your life for those you love. And so what does that look like practically? Well, I just, again, husbands, we're not going to get this perfect, but this is the standard, this is the goal, this is who we are to emulate. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we love our families, as we, as we love our wives. We're never going to out-humble Jesus. We're never going to out-sacrifice Jesus, out-serve Jesus, out-lead Jesus. But with God's help, by the power of his Spirit, as he fills us, we strive to that end. And it's hard. What does it look like for us to love? I, think I just default to what we learned last week. What does love look like? Well, it looks like loving the undeserving. Even when you don't feel like it, you love the undeserving. And sometimes your wife, you're frustrated, you're angry, you don't feel like loving her, get over it. Love is sacrificial. It places the needs of your wife above your own. Love is extravagant. You love her far beyond what you think she deserves. And you do it joyously not begrudgingly. You don't use it against her. Initially, I had six things that love is not, and one of the things I have in there that I think it's important for us to get in our minds, at least, never mind, I'm preaching to myself right now, so if this doesn't apply to any of you, forget it. Here's what I'm preaching to myself. Love is not a currency to be used later on to get something I want. This is an area where I've struggled my whole life. I know my wife's love languages. I know how to love her, so I take out my pen and my notebook, and I tally all the things I've done for her. Because there's going to come a time when I can be like, well, honey, it's time for mommy and daddy time. I've done these many things for you. I think I've deserved that. 
At which time God says, Paul, you never loved her. If, you, if, if, you, if all you were doing was building a list of things you've done so you could use it to get something you want later, that's not love, that's called selfishness. And you got your reward. I think the most beautiful picture of love in Scripture for me, for servant leadership, the kind that, that Paul is, is, is kind of highlighting here in, in Ephesians 5, it's found in John 13. You're probably familiar with this passage. It's John 13. It's the final night. It's the Passover supper. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem. It's been three years, a long journey to get there. It's the night he's going to be betrayed. The disciples are in the room, including, including Judas. And Jesus, it says in John 13, verses 3 through 5, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from the supper table, he laid aside his outer garment, he took a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And in a culture where your feet were in sandals. There, there, was, there was no more lowly a task for even the most, even the most uh, underappreciated servant. That was the lowliest task of the day was to wash someone's feet. Do you think anybody in the room on that night was confused about who the leader was in the room? As Jesus laid, over his, laid down his outer garment, got down on his hands and feet, grabbed the grubby feet of Judas and the others and began to wash the feet in humility. Do you think anybody wondered who the leader was? Do you think there's any confusion in the room that day? I don't. That's a picture of servant leadership. Husbands, do you wash your wife's feet in such a way where you're not tapping your toes and crossing your arms and expecting something in return? Do you just love your wife in such a way that you serve her as Christ loves the church? So in Christian marriage, wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And real quickly, we get back to the last three verses, verses 31 through 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Paul is quoting Genesis 2, verse 24 here. And then he says in verse 32, the mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. And lastly, the last thing I would encourage you to write down is the husband-wife relationship is to reflect the gospel. The husband-wife relationship is to reflect the gospel. Or another way you could say the husband-wife relationship is to reflect Christ's relationship with the church. For my single brothers and sisters here today, this is not the only way to reflect the gospel. But in the confines of marriage, this is how we reflect the gospel. This is what we put in our wayfinding app. Christ said her beards, it reflects the gospel. Go. This mystery that Paul is talking about here, he's referring to the hidden plan of God that has come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is why he's quoting Genesis 2. All the way back before the fall in the Garden of Eden, Paul is taking that and he's tying it into the relationship between Christ and the church. This is a mystery. And the command for a husband to love his wife as his own flesh originates in creation at the first marriage in human history when God made a one flesh union, the first one flesh union. This is God's original design for husbands and wives. And, and I, I've said this a jillion times, but to me, for years, I, I thought when I would read the New Testament and it would talk about how, how Christ is the groom and the church is the bride, in my mind, I sort of just thought that when Jesus showed up, the New Testament writers scratched their chin and thought about it theologically, and they said, oh, you know, Jesus is sort of like the husband and the church is sort of like the bride. Yeah, that works, so let's apply that metaphor. But that's not the case. 
Before sin contaminated human relationship, all the way back in Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden, as God was fashioning, uh, uh, he was was forming and fashioning Adam and Eve, uh, before sin, to be perfect partners, to to be this beautiful one flesh union, the first marriage, he was creating the human institution, the human relationship that he knew would be the living metaphor for the gospel for all of human history. It wasn't an afterthought. It was in the design of marriage was this idea that we are seeing today. And so I've often thought, when I give myself to, to loving my wife as Christ loved the church, and when my, li- my wife gives herself to submitting to my, to my leadership as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ, it is an act of worship. And as we're trusting that God is going to fill us with his spirit to, to live and love in such a way, it is an act of worship, and it's an apologetic to an unbelieving world to look upon a marriage and see a reflection of Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. It blew my mind. Submission and love go hand in hand. Sacrifice and marriage go hand in hand. This is not a 50-50 relationship. It's a 100-100 relationship, as my pastor said 22 years ago on my wedding day. I'm not holding anything back. As I am loved with the perfect divine love of Christ, the eternal love of Christ, and my, my need to be loved is perfectly and fully satisfied in him, vertically, when I lift my eyes down to my primary marriage relationship, I can empty myself with 100% of myself because I'm already perfectly loved. Becky and I set our coordinates on this Christ-centered marriage. We're on the same page. So she was then able to love me with 100% of yourself. It's this beautiful picture of fully emptying yourself and being fully satisfied in one another to the glory of God. And so, marriage is this picture where wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And the husband-wife relationship is to reflect the gospel. So I just want to lovingly encourage my brothers that are here today or here listening online are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church wives I want to lovingly and humbly encourage my sisters today are you submitting to your husband as the church submits to Christ when an unbelieving world looks on your marriage do they see a reflection of the gospel A couple that's striving with many reroutes to live out this picture of marriage for the glory of God. Pray with me. Father, I'm thankful that you've given us this opportunity as a church to gather in this place today. And and even for my single brothers and sisters and and, and for those that are engaged and divorced and all the different places we may find ourselves and especially for my brothers and sisters today who are in Christian marriage, God. I'm so thankful for the rich teaching that you give us through the Apostle Paul. God, I pray that that you would open our eyes, you would bring conviction, God, you would bring obedience and humility and whatever you need to bring into our marriages that we might be able to live this out. And God, I know that there are people here today whose hearts are just broken because they would love nothing more than to have a spouse next to them who is fighting for the same things. And so God, I hold up those marriages today. I hold up those desiring hearts today. God, their pleas, their heart, their reality does not fall on deaf ears. God, you are present with them today. God, I just along with whoever those men and women may be today, God, I just lift those prayers up to you. God, you know. You know, and you're at work. So God, have your way. Bring healing, bring restoration, bring hope, bring intimacy, bring oneness, and ultimately bring glory to yourself. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I thought it would be a little bit strange to have a sermon on marriage and only hear from a dude. And so uh, today I actually, I asked my wife if she would be willing to come up on stage for just a few minutes 
as, uh, as we kind of just chat a little bit more kind of in the applicational aspect of things. And so we, Becky and I have done this in the past. We've been doing, this is my wife Becky, by the way. And so I thought it would be nice to invite Becky up on the stage for just a few minutes. And, and, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the, some of the ways in which her, she and I, over 22 and a half years, have fought through the reroutes to try to figure things out. But before we do that, Becky, why don't you tell many, them a little bit many about Many, many reroutes. Many, many, many reroutes. Uh, uh, why don't you tell the congregation in a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Becky. You all know that now. Um, I, Paul and I, he mentioned this earlier, we've been married for 22 years, but we've been together for almost 25 now. Yep. And, um, You're so lucky. So lucky. So, so lucky. Very lucky. Uh, we have three beautiful children. We have a almost 21-year-old, a 19-year-old, and a 16-year-old. And we have an awesome little grandson who is 19 months old, and he is... He's 20 months old? 20 months old. And he is like the mascot of Heritage. It's like it's, he Paul runs would the know the 20 months. He's hilarious. He's Pop Pop's uh, favorite yeah. little man. He's got me wrapped around his finger. Um, and uh, Paul and I have been serving, we've been in ministry together for 22 years yeah. and in vocational ministry for 16 yeah. years. And um, even right now, I'm, I'm ser serving right now in the family ministry, in the children's ministry. So if any of you are interested and want to get involved, I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> I, this is my opportunity to tell you, you should get involved. There's a lot of great kids here. Okay, enough about that. So, uh, um, Becky... Um, <laughs> We, uh, we, we have developed, uh, you know, over the years, we're not going to say all that can be said about, how to, how, about marriage. We, we have four just simple things that we, practices, disciplines that we've incorporated over the years in our marriage that, we've, that for us have been super helpful at rerouting and getting our focus back on Jesus and, and reinstilling intimacy and health into our marriage. Our thought was to share that briefly with you today. Could you just kind of give a quick overview of what those four rules are? Sure. Um, we, we like to use an acronym called TIME. I think spending time together is kind of a, a thing to do in marriages. And so in that acronym, um, tell your love story often, um, being intentional, make allowances for each other's faults, and express your love in a language your lover understands. Yeah, and, and, and we're going to unpack those here in a minute. So, Becky, first and foremost, explain what do you mean, like why would we tell our love story often? What do you mean by that? Sure, and I, and I, I want to preface too that like these four things aren't just in marriage; they're in relationships, and they're even in our relationship with God. So I think they're really great tools there. Um, tell your love story is really just what it is. Tell your love story. Talk about how you met, how you got to know each other, um, what that looked like, what you felt like, what those moments were, even the details. Uh, the funny thing is, I am not. That's not my DNA um, in our marriage. I'm. I'm not the, the feeler. Becky's an emotional robot in our marriage, and I'm the crier. And I'm, what makes, I'm overly sensitive about everything, so it's... But um, Paul is a very gifted storyteller. You might have already you know, heard that in his preaching. Um, but so I'm going to actually let you express how you tell love stories. Well, I, you know, I discovered how quickly you can forget that the woman you're with or the person you're with is the one you ask God for. Becky and I met uh, August 14th, 1993. She blew my mind. She was beautiful. I told my mom that night I met the girl I was going to marry, tongue-in-cheek. Little did I know I actually was going to marry her. Four years later, after following her around like a puppy dog, uh, Becky, um, Becky asked me on our first date. And we went on our first date, and we watched the sun set. Uh, she leaned her head on my shoulder, 
uh, the, the cool North Dakota breezes on that April 27th day, uh, and I have my arm around you, I, I creepishly smelled your hair when you weren't paying attention. I couldn't believe that I was with Becky Douglas. I couldn't, we shared a malt at this restaurant. It was the perfect, you know, and, and, and then we got engaged. It was a love story. We got married. Fast forward a couple years, and I see you as my adversary. I'm like, wait a second. Why, why do I see you as my adversary? And, I, and it was so easy for me, like, though I love you more than anybody in the world, I found that I could be the most cruel to you, and I could be the most angry with you because I had given you access to parts of who I was where you could press in on those sensitive spots, and I could press in on your I sensitive spots. I definitely knew how to push the buttons. You definitely knew how to push the buttons early on. And we discovered, it's like, no, wait, you are not my enemy. You're my lover. You're the one I beg God for. You're the one God has put into my life to, to sharpen me. You're the one God has put into my life to help me grow in Christ, to journey with me in this life. And so I discovered that by telling my love story, it was like, it was so helpful for me to, to share that story to you, to me, to our kids. And not just the courtship before marriage. Like, there were some difficult days in marriage. We had to walk through some dark valleys together. God was faithful in those moments. We learned to love more. And resolve pulled us through by, the, by God's power. And we even tell those stories up to the very present moment because it reminds us that we're caught up in this amazing story together. And so that's why we've been telling our love story often. Yeah, and I think even in parenting, um, when you think about the relationship and parenting, telling your love story to your kids and how you met and, and how, the, how that's grown and, and even their story of how they came into this world and, and, and who they are and who God's calling them to be. It's a beautiful tool to tell your love story. Yeah, yesterday we were, we were at a funeral where the, the husband and wife, where, where Lillian was, was being married. They've been married 71 years. 71 years. And I thought, what an awesome love story. What a testament to faithfulness and to God's faithfulness to yeah. be at that. that. Yeah. And even if you think about our relationship with Jesus, you know, it's like how important that we go back all the time and say, God, you rescued me. I was a sinner who was destined to spend eternity apart from you, and you pursued me. You're the hound of heaven, to quote, to quote Mitch a few weeks ago. You're the pursuer with a capital P, and you love me so much you went to the ends of the earth. You went to the cross. You shed blood that I might be saved and redeemed and caught up in this cosmic love story, and it elicits worship in us to do that. Secondly, so tell your love story often. Secondly, is this idea of intentionality. I'm a guy that tends to fly through life by the seat of my pants. I don't, I, I've struggled with this idea of intentionality, but Becky has been the standard bearer when it comes to intentionality. So Becky, why don't you unpack why we put that as a rule? I love calendars. <laughs> if I could have a whole room of calendars. Um, intentionality has been kind of my, my word, my thesis, I like to say, of, of the things that I, I do in my family, and it's, it's being intentional about three core things, um, spiritual, emotional, and physical health in our marriage and in our parenting and what we do, and, and being intentional is setting aside time to, if it's even calendaring, intentional moments of devotional time, my spiritual health, intentional moments of prayer time between Paul and I, um, audibly praying together, intentional moments of, of physical health, of of us, I, I'm a runner, and I, I like to make him run with me, even though he hates it. So he intentionally will do that just because he knows that I. And I never complain that. ever when I have to run ever. <laughs> Only a little. Um, being intentional about these areas. Now you're going to always fail. You're always going to struggle. I mean, I can think of a million times, even in parenting, being intentional and having devotionals and all this fancy things we are going to do to teach our kids about Jesus, and it would be a mass chaos, and then we'd never do this one again. But you try another one. You're intentional. You're intentional in your parenting. You're intentional in your marriage. Like if him and I are struggling, I'm going to intentionally make date time and and um, time to get away with him or time to just pray together and and, 
and study the God's word together. That's intentionality. And you use a cal- you talk about your calendar. It's kind of funny, but even in our we have a Google a shared Google calendar. So I'll see it. it'll be literally like on a Thursday night at 7 p.m. Be nice to Paul. It's like oh that is so funny that you you know touch Paul affirmingly. Like that is so awesome. We'll get to that in the the express your love in a language. Yeah, because yeah. We have very different ways of. You know, when I was at my last love. church, my assistant had my calendar, and uh, you know husbands and wives, mommies and daddies like to have special uh, intimate time together. And we would use code language to schedule in our it's calendar. It's okay to schedule that stuff. And my, my secretary would see that. I'd be like, oh, uh, never mind. Just forget that. Next thing. But let's not talk about that. But, but sincerely, healthy marriages, healthy relationships don't fall out of the sky. You're not going to fall into a healthy Christ-centered marriage. You're not going to fall into a healthy Christ-centered family. You're not going to fall into emotional and spiritual and physical health. It takes intentionality. And if we just think we can drift through life and our marriage is going to be fine, it's foolish. There's that old adage of a failure to plan is a plan to fail. And I feel like just being intentional in saying, no, this is of utmost priority, and we're going to do everything we can. And it's true for any relationship. It's especially true for our relationship with the Lord. We've got uh, spiritual disciplines. If they're anything, they're a plan of intentionality to foster intimacy with Jesus, meet with Christ in the scriptures, spend time in prayer, fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, participate in corporate worship, fast, practice solitude, stillness, memorize scripture. All those disciplines are acts of intentionality destined or designed to create intimacy with the Lord. And so we've got tell your love story often, intentionality, and then we have the third one, which is very self-explanatory. Becky, what do you mean by make allowance for each other's faults? Say you're sorry. (laughs) sorry. Paul's very good at saying he's sorry. I am a very stubborn woman. (laughs) I've I've like more than once I've said, why do I have to drag you to an apology? (laughs) So making allowance for each other's faults is really grace. Um, our God has given us so much grace. He's, um, I'm so thankful for his grace for me and, and that reminder that, that I need to be graceful to my husband and learning how to ask for forgiveness and being willing to forgive. And we have a, a thing in our home of how if we make a mistake, it's, it's tr- truly stating what we did and saying, will you please forgive me? And, and that's stating that back. And I just think it's so important that we don't hold grudge. The bitterness that can, can be held in a marriage will create such a wide, wide wedge yeah. when we don't forgive and we don't ask for forgiveness and we don't repent. And, and, and like the Lord asks us to do that to him and he is so gracious to forgive us, we should be so gracious to yeah, forgive Paul says other. that in Ephesians 4. He writes in the end of Ephesians chapter 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, he says, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We always do this, like if I'm pointing at Becky and I'm pointing out a flaw, there's three fingers pointing back at me. It's just a great reminder to do some self-examination before I point the speck out. And it's the reroute. It's a reroute of, of change we need to make. Yeah, and what relationship, think about it from a parenting relationship, in marriage, but also think about it especially in parenting. If you are shining a flashlight on every one of your children's failures, if that's, if that's how you lead, if that's what drives the relationship, I'm going to point out your failure, I'm going to point out your failure, I'm going to point out your failure, I'm going, to, I'm going to show all the things that you've done wrong. How does that bring about any joy or hope or intimacy or forward progress in any relationship? You know, we are imperfect people, and if I want to just hyper-focus on the flaws of my spouse or the flaws of those around me, we got, we got data all day long to do that. Becky's got data all day long to point out all my oh, flaws. Oh, I, I got a list. Okay, enough of that. But, <laughs> but we just, the idea here is like, no, let's... Let's live in a culture of grace. We are products of grace. We have divine grace has washed our sins away that we can be born again, walk in newness of life, be known and loved by God. It's in, 
let's, 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 be, let's live within a culture of grace within our homes. Yeah. And to evaluate any, any friendship well, relationship. Yeah. yeah, any relationship. You can hold grudges or you can, you can, you can extend grace. And then lastly uh, is this idea of, of you know, expressing your love. The long version of that we used to say is express your love in a language that your lover speaks. And so I, I don't think that the, the Five Love Languages book by Gary Chapman is gospel. It gets railed a lot. But for us, it's been very practical. And in that book, Chapman says there are five primary ways that we both give and receive love. And so the, you guys have probably all heard it. It's, it's been around church world forever. But the five ways we give and receive love are words of affirmation, physical touch, gift giving, acts of service, and quality time. And so, so early on in marriage, we did not know how to love each other at all. No, I spent a lot of time cleaning the house, making sure everything's organized, and, everything's and, and then when he would come home, he's waiting and hoping that I would just come give him a hug and a kiss and, and say, tell honey, me that I was how was handsome. your day? You look so good. And really, I, w- I was like, are you, do you not notice all that I did today? Hello. Look I just thought there place. was like a laundry fairy that did our laundry and put it away. I didn't know it was her. It was just always and so I would get frustrated at his inability to understand what uh, the yeah. work I was doing and showing his, him love and then he'd get frustrated because I wouldn't show the affection and speak affirmation and give him the love that he needed. Well yeah you're frustrated because I'm not helping around so it's so it's so very early on I, I understood. A lot of reroutes during that time. A zillion and, and it's still to this day but you, at some point in any whether it's a friendship or a marriage relationship whatever relationship you know how to love your friends you know how to love the people that are dear to you you know how to. Yeah. There's no excuse right. I know exactly the way I can love Becky in a way that's going to can meet her right where her heart is. And if I choose to not do it, it's disobedience and it's selfishness. And so I find myself saying, God, help me not be so selfish. I know the way to love my wife. I know it's quality time. I know it's planning special time with you. I know it's serving around the home. It's doing things that are hidden and unseen. And if I make a tally of it, I've already, I've already let my left hand know what my right hand is doing, and I've lost the reward, and it's not love. So, so God, help me to express love in a way that, that meets Becky where she is, that she would be encouraged, that she would experience your love through me to her, and vice versa. And there's just simply no excuse to not love you in that way. But I'm selfish. Me too. Yeah, and so God, by your help, through your spirit, bring conviction and obedience. And it's with any other relationship as well. I mean, your kids have a love language. Yeah. If, you're, if you have kids, they have a love language. How do you love your kids? Is it quality time? Is it picking up the phone? Is it, uh, is it physical touch? Is it throwing an arm around them? Is it giving them a special gift that's got meaning? That just doesn't have to be an expensive gift. It just tells your kid, you know, I thought about you today on the way home from work. I stopped by the store. I got you this bouquet of flowers. Or I got you this card. Or I got you this little thing because I love you. And so think about how can you be intentional in fostering intimacy in your core relationships. And so that's it. That's it. Making time in your relationships. Tell your love story often. Um, um, be intentional in all things. Make allowance for each other's faults. Express your love in a language your lover speaks. Super pragmatic, super practical. I wanted to share that with you today. Uh, Becky, thank you for joining us. Before it's, I, it's not a, a ABC to a perfect marriage. No, but it's, they're just it's simple definitely tools. simple tools. Yeah, they're just use. tools. I mean, all we got to. For those of us that are married, Christ-centered marriage. We want our marriage to reflect the gospel of the world around us. Let's put that in the wayfinding app of our marriage, and let's be committed to that. No matter how many reroutes we go, that is the, that's the arrow, that's the direction, that's the trajectory we're committed to until we stand in the presence of Jesus. And these are just simple tools. There's a million other tools that you can incorporate that might help you do that. Again, babe, thanks for coming. Um, you know, you've never been on the stage. You've never had a microphone before. It's not often that we have moments like this. You want me to have this? But, you know, I know you're not a words of affirmation person, but you're the most godly woman I know. I admire you more than any other human being on the planet. And if you could just take one minute just to speak a truth 
or an encouraging word into the women of our church, what would that be? Um, I, would, I'm, I would just encourage you, just John 15, 5 says, um, I am the vine, you are the van- branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And when we abide in God's love and we allow, we spend time in his word and in prayer and, and seeking out um, his changing power in us, then we can fulfill being the wife, the mother, the woman that God's called us to be. Um, we can't do it in our own strength. In my own strength, I will fail. I will be the meanest woman in the world and treat my children horrible and my husband. But when I seek God and allow him in, he changes me and he gives me the strength and wisdom to begin to make steps towards being the woman that my husband, my children, my friends, my relationships need. Um, I, I have to abide in him. So I would just encourage you to abide. Yeah, amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for our church. God, I'm thankful for Becky. I'm thankful for uh, this text that we got to sit in today. God, I do pray that it would be an encouragement to the people of our church. God, and the goal of this church is not healthy marriages. The goal of this church is the glory of God, that you be glorified, magnified, exalted, made much of. Uh, the goal of the Christian life isn't healthy marriages. It's, it's to be formed and shaped and molded into the image of Christ for the glory of God to go forth as ministers of the gospel. Marriage is a mechanism. It's a tool. It's a means to do that. And so, God, would you, would you, would you help us fix our eyes on the big picture here today? The big picture of, 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 of a Christ-centered relationships, of marriages that reflect the gospel. God, may our desire be to worship you, to exalt you, to serve you, to, 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 to be formed and shaped and molded and sanctified daily more and more into the image of your son Jesus. And God, would that just bleed into every relationship that we have. God, use this church, use our church, use the marriages in this church to bring glory to yourself. God, we love you. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, church, would you go ahead and stand? I just want to send you out with uh, the encouraging words of Paul at the end of chapter 3 of Ephesians. And I'm going to send you out today. I encourage you to stick around, stack a chair, have relationships, talk, get to know one another. But before I send you out, let me just send you out with Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, church. You're dismissed.